And I kept coming back to the image that ended up being used on the cover of the book of him leaning on the spade uh, in exile in his last garden, where he swapped the famous beacon hat for which he'd become so famous for the straw hat. And this man he had acquired such a huge influence, such a huge empire, is left with almost nothing right at the end of his life. He did genuinely believe that if, if he hadn't had to become, you know, military genius and, and, and devote himself to life as a soldier, that he would have been a scientist and that he would have been making a, a, a massive contribution. In one respect, caring about the garden on St. Helena was a continuation of um, a way of coping with being in exile. But it was more than that. He was also very psychologically bothered about being surveyed by the British guards. So two things came together with the extensive gardening project that he had. One was that it would give him some exercise. It would also help him hide from the guards. Welcome to Artidote Podcast, where I interview non-fiction authors about their timeless books and ideas. My name is Vashik Armenikos, and my guest today is Dr. Ruth Scar, who is an academic at the University of Cambridge and author of a brilliant new biography of Napoleon called Napoleon, A Life Told in Gardens and Shadows. One of the reviewers of this book said that, open quote, more books have been written about Napoleon than there have been days since his death in May 1821. Now Rusker has ingenuously somehow found an entirely new prism through which to view Napoleon, a gardener, end quote. In this interview, Dr. Rusker told me about Napoleon's double relationship with gardens. On the one hand, Napoleon was interested in botany and gardens satisfied his inherent scientific curiosity. Curiosity. On the other hand, however, Napoleon viewed gardens as a space for reflection, contemplation and where he could have deep philosophical conversations. Thank you for joining Artidote Podcast and I hope you will enjoy listening to my interview with Dr. Ruth Sker. Dr. Skirs, thank you so much for coming to my podcast. You have uh, such a lovely book on Napoleon. I enjoyed reading it so much and I shared it with my readers of uh, of my newsletter. I received so many emails saying uh, about, first of all, how wonderful it's written and second, that it is a kind of a very fresh angle on Napoleon's life. For those of my, of my audience, of my readers who are not familiar with you, could you um, tell a little bit about yourself, about your research. Sure. So um, I'm an academic in Cambridge and I'm at Gonville and Keys College and I specialise in the history of political thought, um, sort of 1700 to 1890. I'm also very interested in um, the uh, theory of the modern state. And so I have lots of lots of historical interests. But Alongside that, um, I've always been fascinated by biography and by the ways in which it's possible to be creative within the, the genre, because sometimes biography has 
a pretty um, negative reputation. They're sort of traditional cradle to grave, um, great big tombs of, of work. Um, also claims to be definitive. So the idea that as a biographer, you have to sort of displace the other people who came before you and you have to make grand claims for this being the definitive picture of the life. And all of that I find extremely unattractive and I'm very opposed to to the idea that any single biographer could possibly capture everything that's important in another person's life. And I believe that as a biographer, I bring a lot of myself to the task of writing about someone else's life. So actually, it's a relationship between the two of us. So that's my background. Um, I've now written three biographies, and, and they're very, very, very different. Um, and I, I can talk to you a little bit about that if, if you think your listeners would be interested. Yes, of course, towards the end of the interview, I would like to ask you to tell a little bit more about them. What um, makes your um, book on Napoleon to stand out, that it looks through a completely different angle of his personality, which was very broad personality. I was I was curious, how, how did you notice that kind of a missing gap uh, that wasn't explored in Napoleon's life? How did you uh, uh, stumble upon it? So the fantastic question and um, the, the, the starting point um, is actually in the shadows. So in my t- subtitle, I have a life in gardens and shadows. And my first idea was to try and write about Napoleon from the perspective of the other people gathered around his life who over whom his shadow fell. So it would be the opposite of saying this guy was the sun and this guy was the center of the universe and he's a great big powerful man and therefore we have to keep writing about him. The approach was going to be to assemble around him lots of much less well-known lives and in some cases really quite obscure lives um, over whom his influence fell and to almost create a sort of um, a negative biography of him. So he would emerge from, from those other lives, but the focus would be more on them than on him. So that was the original idea. And then it became very, very difficult to execute because there are so many thousands of lives over whom he has had an influence. And it was really difficult to choose who you were going to include, uh, who you were going to focus on. You know, um, I I was really, really struggling to to narrow it down to, to, to the cast list that I needed. And so then I went back to thinking about what, images of Napoleon had always really, really stayed in my in my mind, like why I wanted to write about Napoleon in the first place. And I kept coming back to the image that ended up being used on the cover of the book of him leaning on the spade uh, in exile in his last garden, where he swapped the famous beacon hat for which he'd become so famous for the straw hat. And this man he had 
acquired such a huge influence, such a huge empire, is left with almost nothing right at the end of his life. And then I went back to the beginning of the story and I started noticing gardens, um, garden at school, Mulberry Nursery on Corsica, um, his love for the botanical garden in the centre of Paris. And I went through the whole story and started looking for more gardens and they were just there. They just came. It was sort of magical for me to, to find that. And around the gardens, I was able to use those spaces as my principle of including other people. So I could include the other people he'd He'd met in the gardens, who'd helped create the gardens, his architects, artists, people who who actually were were involved in those gardens, which went from being very, very small at at the beginning. I mean, almost, you know, uh, we we have very fragile evidence for this first garden at school and, and and they get stronger and stronger. And as his power rises, the gardens rise in 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 magnitude and splendor until they start falling off. And that's a very, a very fascinating time when his power is declining and the plans that he had for a grand garden right at the centre of, of Paris have to be revised down until they end up being a garden pavilion on the banks of the Seine. So that was how it was. It was definitely something I discovered um, in the process of writing rather than having a very clear idea right at the beginning what I was going to be doing. Yeah, it's uh, it's fascinating. You start uh, your uh, biography with the quote by Paul Valéry, where uh, I won't be able to cite it word by word, but for uh, for our listeners, uh, Paul Valéry said that if only Napoleon focused his energy on something uh, like science, gardening, etc. Um, I wanted to ask you if if you can tell where. Do you think this source of um, uh, of fascination of gardens being important in his life, in your opinion, came um, to, the, to the life of Napoleon? Could have become uh, a scientist, equally a scientist. And uh, I, I guess that's what fascinated me in your biography is that, you know, this personality about whom uh, I've written so many books uh, already, and there is this part of his life that hasn't been explored. And it's a combination of uh, what you actually just mentioned there when 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 you were talking a very serious scientific in uh, interests that he has throughout his life. Um, he did genuinely believe that if if he hadn't had to become you know military genius and 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 devote himself to life as a soldier that he would have been a scientist and that he would have been making a, a, a massive contribution i mean obviously he you know he, he he's not um a self-effacing person so he he immediately thinks that he might have been comparing himself with newton if if he had chosen this path um goodness only knows what what the truth is but what is clear is that he is really interested in science in scientists and supportive of of them throughout his life but only if they don't clash with his political views. So there comes a point where he will prioritise politics, um, especially religious politics, when he's starting to try and build a um, rapprochement with, with, the, with the Pope. Um, he doesn't want the scientists disrupting that with their views and, and causing trouble. So there's one quote where, you know, he says to them, don't mess with my Bible. You know, this is this is not the time. I don't want us to, 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 to have these kinds of 
um, debates open opening up. He he never he never hesitates to to censor um, if he thinks that's in the political interests of of the the regime that he's trying to stabilize. And yet there is, I think, a really genuine interest in trying to develop science and scientific understanding. And we, and we see that in a whole variety of, of contexts. So I think, I think that's a very big part of the interest in gardening, in, in botany, in propagating plants, in understanding what's possible. But there's also just a very human love of green spaces, um, the relaxation that comes from being outside, being able to to walk and reflect on on important decisions and feeling I think I was kind of draw a contrast that you know this is someone who's who's almost always in motion and in a hurry and he's very often at war so when we see him in those green spaces there are unusual opportunities to see what he's like in more restful moments or, 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 or more reflective moments, actually. So there are like the gardens serve two poor purposes here. One is like his interest in botany and trying to build um, to bring all the exotic uh, things to France, but at the same time, a places for reflection. Yeah, definitely. And there's also an aesthetic um, side to it. I mean, he likes the traditional French classical style of gardening. He likes straight lines. He likes avenues of trees. He likes topiary. He likes order imposed on, on nature. And he gets into a conflict with his first wife, Josephine, who has a very different aesthetic. She likes romantic um, vistas, she likes um, winding paths, uh, picturesque views in her in her garden and they definitely clash there and you can see in that uh, the very very human um, disputes that that you know many couples would have over over their taste in their in their garden or, or, or in their house. It's very interesting the aesthetic the kind of reflective and the, his scientific curiosity in, in in gardens when he was just starting let's say uh, he was a young officer were his interests uh, in gardening more focused on the scientific part and then once he became the emperor and he could afford the aesthetic reflective uh, pleasures how did it change in his life this balance between these three um, factors yeah. So you're exactly right. I mean, as um, as a young soldier, what he really loves is the botanical garden at the centre of Paris and the um, amazing way in which it has survived the revolution. So it was one of the very few royalist in institutions that actually managed to remake itself and, and survive. And it provided... Um, a green space and a space of, of scientific inquiry right at the centre of Paris, even during the terror, which is quite extraordinary. And he really loved to go there. He loved to see the new animals that came to the menagerie there. He, he loves the greenhouses there. So it's very scientific and certainly he isn't at that stage in his life actively participating in gardening. So then as his um, power and influence develop when he goes um, to Egypt, for example. He wants to establish a similar botanical garden in Egypt as part of the traveling institute, as part of all those 
scholars and um, scientists that he's brought with him to Egypt. And he wants his own garden in Egypt to have certain French features grafted onto it. So he's irritated there aren't enough alleys and walkways because that's one of the major purposes for the garden as he understands it. So he starts to, to graft them into his garden that he had in, in Cairo. And after that, the gardens become even grander. I mean, there's this hope that there can be a huge garden right at the centre of Paris, which will really sort of be parallel and, and, and replicate the possible garden at the centre of Rome that he was planning. These huge, huge gardens to incorporate the ancient monuments in Rome, and he's going to have a parallel one in Paris, etc. But I think he only starts actually personally gardening, apart from the odd little bit at Malmaison, his house with Josephine, where there's occasional reports of people going to visit him there and he's overseeing some more watering of beds or something. But I think the real active involvement comes in exile. So it comes almost as a solace, as, a, as an activity that comes into his life when he has already started to lose power. And it's a way, I think, of, of continuing to impose order on his environment, but obviously that shrinks down smaller and smaller. First, the first exile on Elba, he has um, a considerable garden there and he has quite a lot of money and he's able to, 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 to make big changes there. But once you get to the final exile on St. Helena, he's really struggling to even get you know, minimal plants to grow in a very, very hostile environment. So it's very, it's very interesting to see his character shift through that whole arc of of grandeur and then decline. You mentioned his uh, uh, campaign to Egypt that he had. His expedition, as you mentioned, uh, consists of many scholars and uh, different scientists who traveled there. I was wondering what he was trying. Was this balance between between importing and exporting? What was he trying to bring to Egypt? Let's say in con- contrast to France, how 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 do they differ? Like this different personality traits of him. So this is one of the things that's very important to me is to be able to capture the very different ways in which we can assess him. So and not to have to choose, you know. Was he um, simply an exploitative conqueror or was he an enlightenment figure? You know, in many respects, both are true. He was in Egypt to pursue France's commercial interests. Um, he behaves with excessive brutality on, on, on many occasions. He doesn't hesitate to knock down buildings, um, trees, uh, anything that is in his way, in what he perceives to be the French interest in Egypt. So it's brutal, it's oppressive. But it's also true that he takes the scientists and um, scholars with him to try to collate information about the history of the country, about the practices of agriculture, about the animals, the flora, the fauna, I'll end up producing this incredible description of Egypt with beautiful drawings and really important data collected in a very systematic manner. So it's it's a mixed picture. You know, you, it, on, on the one hand, you want to say, well, 
This is um, a, a barbaric enterprise. Um, he, he on occasions shows very little um, regard for, for what he finds in Cairo. Um, and on the other hand, he is definitely a highly, highly educated person who really values history, literature, uh, scientific knowledge, and does a lot to to collect that at that at that time. So it's it's very important, I think, to be able to accept and acknowledge both sides of of that story. you enjoy listening to my interview with Dr. Ruth Skerr. Before we continue, I would like to mention that you can receive all of my book recommendations straight to your inbox by subscribing to my newsletter. I'll leave a link to it in the description of this episode. I would also like to thank all of you who replied to my previous edition of my newsletter and sent all of your wonderful questions for this interview. If you are not a subscriber yet, as I mentioned, you can join and send your questions to the future guests by following a link that I'll leave in the description. Thank you for listening once again, and let's continue with the rest of the episode. Was there Were there practices um, in gardening in Egypt that he particularly liked? Were there like practices in, let's say, in Egypt, in, in the culture there that he admired and wanted to bring back to France or uh, and the other way around? So so it's mostly the other way around. So the the attitude he has and that the, the scholars have is one of implicit superiority. They assume that um, what they find is less evolved, less developed in agricultural practice than what they have been used to in Europe. So he, for example, describes um, what, what his his one of his scientists describes in the in the description of Egypt um, that actually yes there are important exo- uh, gardens in Cairo but they're not gardens in the European sense these are more like plantations um, the French think that they have been designed to be viewed from above from a sedentary position in a kiosk um, or from from a terrace rather than walked in and enjoyed. So they keep on drawing this contrast between whether you value a garden as a, as a place to, to walk in and to exercise in and to reflect in, or whether you want it to basically be visible from inside. Um, and so a backdrop to, to, to your house or, or, or your palace, what, what, whatever. So there's that contrast. But um, also he's very... In some respects, they're very um, quick to describe as their own achievements, achievements that already existed before they got there. So with the Institute's Botanical Garden, very quickly, they're really proud of what they have achieved. I say this garden on the banks of the Nile is going to rival the one in, in Paris. It could become the most beautiful garden in the world. But they don't emphasize that actually... 
it was already a botanical garden before they got there. So they may have brought some improvements. They may have, you know, altered things more to, to, to their taste. They may have built upon something, but, but it actually existed there before, before they got there. And that's very interesting. I think this kind of willingness to, to simply begin the history, begin the story of, of a garden with their arrival when it patently was not the case. I assume it, it, this idea also comes from the French Revolution itself that tried to um, count everything from the from the start. That's a very good point. So they, these are all revolutionary generation people, uh, Napoleon himself, who lived through that. The, the sense of, um, you know, beginning again, um, restarting the story of history, of civilization, etc. And I, I mean, I write a bit in my book about the revolutionary calendar, and um, Napoleon actually ends up cancelling that experiment. But it's so interesting. I want, I want uh, sorry for interrupting. I wanted to mention that yes, you in your book you mention all the dates in parallel with the revolutionary calendar. Was that the purpose yes it was so um it's quite it's quite cumbersome so it takes up quite a lot of space if you're going to give the date in in the old gregorian style and the revolutionary calendar style but i really wanted that because i wanted people to to just keep confronting the strangeness of that period of time where even the days and the months are are redescribed. They're given these new names. There's a, there's a new decimal system for calculating the passage of time, and it's so extraordinary that that could have been invented, introduced, and then cancelled again within within that short space of, of time. And also, lots of the um, the botanists and gardeners that. Um, Napoleon knew from from the botanical garden in Paris they're involved in it they are thinking up the names of of the new days um giving advice on how to um formulate the calendar etc and so it's it's one of the crossover points between exactly what you said the the revolutionary spirit and then the way Napoleon, even though he has come through the revolution, even though he has been an enthusiastic revolutionary, starts to close it down. Um, and for many of the friends of his who were a revolutionary and republican in their in their in their feelings and commitments, they they really could not forgive um, this this betrayal of the revolutionary dreams as as they saw it. It is phenomenal to think that the. Uh all the days, all the um, years can be counted completely differently and from scratch. It's uh, yeah. uh, it's yeah. it's very difficult to fully understand it. It is, but it's also very magical. I, I follow the revolutionary calendar on Twitter, so I often know which day we're in. You know, we're in watering can day, or today is the day of the fig, or whatever. And it's 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 such a beautiful construct that they they had, and obviously what's important there is completely secular um that was that was part of the point this was going to be the natural world this was going to be mankind sort of charting time and the passage of the years through a a, a natural framework rather than a religious
religious one. Uh, you mentioned several times in your book that um, gardens were uh, certain gardens were designed as if the man uh, man imposing uh, its will on uh, on nature, uh, particularly if I'm not mistaken in Jardins de Plantes. This idea of um, humans imposing their uh, will on nature is it. It also comes from the revolution. And how did it change in the mind of Napoleon over his life? You know, this imposing. Yeah. So I think for me, with the particular case of Napoleon, there's this um, parallel uh, contrast between the garden and the battlefield. Um, so they're both spaces within which there is um, a strategy where the terrain and the weather and all of those natural features um, matter in terms of what you're trying to achieve. And he, on the battlefield, was incredibly detailed in his understanding of what kind of light and um, what kind of effect the visibility is is going to have, how to understand the presence of a river running through the space, etc. And I think that for me, there is a parallel with the, the kinds of um, planning and strategy in gardens, but obviously one is creative and one is destructive. So there's a huge contrast there. And I also talk about the two times in his life where that contrast broke down and end up with a very vicious battle in a garden. And that is, uh, uh, you know, one of the framing ideas of, of the book really is that sort of right at the beginning, right at the end, that distinction between the creative and the destructive was threatened when suddenly you had um, a very vicious battle occurring in what had been a formal and very structured and controlled space. One of them is in Waterloo and the other one is in a name, in a French name that I find very difficult to really? pronounce. Yeah, 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 yes. Um, so one is in the beginning of his uh, life and the other one is the Waterloo towards the end. And um, what was the, what is the contrast between the two? The, did it change uh, his perception of the gardens? Did it change uh, when he encountered them in a military combat? Yeah. yeah. So the first one, is really dramatic because it's the fall of the monarchy. It's basically when um, it becomes clear that the monarchy is going to completely stop and there's going to be a republic. So the king basically gives up his power. And the reason there's a battle is because he instructs his, his bodyguard, his Swiss guard, to lay down their arms, return to their barracks, not to fire on the people. But the People have already broken into this enclosed garden and they take their revenge on, on these soldiers, this, this Swiss guard. And then there is a, a massacre, effectively, There's sort of 700 or so of these corpses piling up um, around the formal garden with the formal pond, the beautiful statues. And... Incredibly, Napoleon was there as Bonaparte as, uh, before he was known as as Napoleon, as he as the young uh, revolutionary soldier Bonaparte, 
he sees the battle and he always remembers it as having had the most profound effect upon him because he's not sure, is it like the first time he's seeing bloodshed very close at hand? Is it because of the contrast between the beautiful garden and, and, and this appalling massacre? Is he, is, is, is it, is it the space? Is it the, that he's, he's still young? But for whatever reason, it, it really stays with him. And later in his life, he tells his brother, you know, I was never so disturbed by bloodshed as I was on that day. So that's the first one. And for me, obviously, you know, it's, it's a very, very uh, rich way of capturing the, the, the regime change that is at the, the, the center of this story, because without the revolution, without the fall of the monarchy, there would be no Napoleon. There would have, he wouldn't have had the opportunities that he had. They're all revolutionary opportunities. Um, and so it's a very, very dramatic framing of that huge historical shift, but in a very particular place. Um, Waterloo is completely different because um, what happened there uh, is that there was a, a, a walled garden as part of a chateau that was on the side of the battlefield. And before the fighting started, Wellington had become very determined to hold on to that chateau as a, as a stronghold on the, on the side of the battlefield. And the French um, soldiers can repeated attempts to take it and they lost many, many, many lives trying to do so. And on several occasions managed to break through the gates and have this sort of fight in, 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 in the garden, uh, which had been a formal garden, also in the orchard beyond that. Um, so Napoleon himself wasn't in the garden at Waterloo, um, but he, that so, well, the the fight that happened there obviously completely ended his power, and the fact that there was this garden and there was a very determined conflict over it, and that Wellington had been so determined to hold on to it, that then entered into the stories of Waterloo afterwards. And so we find it being picked up by, for example, Victor Hugo, when he writes his novel, he, he goes there and he thinks he goes round the garden counting the bullet holes and looking at all the trees that have been destroyed, etc. So it's very evocative of, of that final defeat for, for Napoleon. I was wondering, when you were looking at his life, was were there things that you were really surprised? Did your opinion of Napoleon change? So, um, one of the things I've been most proud of about my book is that people who really, really passionately admire Napoleon and also people who actively dislike him and, and will do anything to... Um, sort of uh, lower his reputation. They have, all, all of them have been accepting of my book and have been a bit unclear as to whether, which side I'm on. Like, do I like him? 
do I not like him? And they ask me sometimes, they're like, but you like him, right? You know, <laughs> you're on our side. Or they say, but obviously you agree, you know, this was a terrible person. And I, I actually, I don't have um, a commitment on, on, on either side. For me, you know, it's about making him uh, real on the page, trying to evoke him rather than my personal judgment as to whether or not this is a good or a bad person. I mean, I, I'm not very interested in that. I'm interested in, in many, many layers and many, many different ways to approach him. So when people say, well, you know, I read your book and it just absolutely confirmed what a terrible man <laughs> I really think he is. That's fine. And when other people say, you know, I've always loved Napoleon and I read your book now I find I, I like him even more that's also fine by me because I don't feel strongly committed in in trying to to decide you know is 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 he is he a goodie or is he a baddie um yeah no of course a person who is looking for confirmation of their beliefs will always find it everywhere uh, what about the layers about his I don't know character curiosity um in terms of like personality uh, traits that um uh, kind of go beyond good and evil. Yes. So the one thing that's very clear is this um, obsessive and attention to detail. He has got the most extraordinary capacity to keep on top of the finer details of the smallest, you know, interior design project that is going on alongside all the other questions of state. So he can do diplomacy, he can do battle planning, he can do all sorts of things that he will also notice if the architect put the window in the wrong place. He is completely on it. He will go through the account books and he will see that the gardener has been overspending. He will look at what the gardener has spent and he'll be like, why didn't we use grass seed instead of using, uh, why did you get this expensive turfs when we could have used grass seed and that would have been half or even a fraction of the cost? So the, the bandwidth of his mind for all manner of tiny details is really, really extraordinary and he's just missing absolutely nothing. Yeah, it, it, it is it is phenomenal when you read about such a broad personality and to see these extraordinary um, talents uh, and unique skills that he had. He he liked he admired certain thinkers, certain uh, architects, but he wasn't hesitant to point out their mistakes as well. Um, you mentioned, I think, uh, the case of Lamarck that uh, he uh, humiliated him uh, in, in some sense. How, um, what was, how did he gauge how intelligent he is in comparison to other thinkers? Was it sometimes sheer arrogance or it was like genuinely he could notice those details? Yeah. So it's better both. So with the Lamarck example, he was um, negatively influenced against Lamarck by other scientists that he trusted and basically was prejudiced um, against him. Uh, didn't take the trouble to really understand um, Lamarck's work. Um, thought at some level it might be threatening to to his intentions with the church. Um, and so he was very, very dismissive. Um, and that's an example of him being influenced by 
the court around him. I mean, like any reigning uh, figure, like a, any monarch, he will take his um, his his guidance on occasions from from the courtiers, um, and he will, as as a result, when we look back with the hindsight, will look as though he was narrow minded and, and and prejudiced. But on other occasions. He's completely right. I mean, he he will spot, um, for example, when Canova sent across the the giant statue of Napoleon that Napoleon was always a bit nervous about because he didn't really want it to be nude. You know, he was like, well, couldn't I, couldn't I just be in my, my you know, battle clothes? I mean, what, my costume, why, why has it got to be nude? And Canova was like, no, no, you know, this is, this is the sublime, this is how we do it, this is the cult sculpture. Anyway, finally it arrives and Napoleon's kind of a bit embarrassed by it for a start, um, as a big contrast with the reality of his physique and what has been portrayed by the sculptor. But he also spots there's like a problem with the elbow joint. And and if you look closely at it, you can think, well, actually, yeah, I see what he means there. You know, maybe <laughs> maybe something has gone wrong with the, with the elbow joint. <laughs> <laughs> must be, uh, Canova must, must have been so annoyed, must have been so annoyed for, uh, you know, when you judge, uh, when someone judges your work so much. Absolutely. It's quite interesting with that statue that, you know, when they were shipping it, they were told if the, if the English capture the boat, chuck it overboard because we don't want that statue captured and taken to England. But that is exactly where it is. It, it's in, in Wellington's house in, in, in London. Um, and, uh, you know, extraordinary that, that it ended up there. Ironic, yeah. And his last garden in, uh, in when he was in exile, I, I was wondering what was his project uh, in terms of garden in that on that island you know what what was his thought process how did um, how did that arc end yeah uh, in his yeah. life so um in one way it's a development of what had happened on elba he was on elba for a much shorter time for the first exile and he had um invested uh, time and money in, in in the gardens of the houses that he lived in on Elba um, and befriended the gardener there. So in one respect, caring about the garden on St. Helena was a continuation of um, a way of coping with being in exile. But it was more than that because he um, became unwell and he was also very psychologically bothered about being surveyed by the British guards. And so two things came together with the extensive gardening project that he had. One was that it would give him some exercise without him having to leave the confines of his own home. And it would also help him hide from the guards because he would construct these sunken paths and these tall um, trellises of plants and that would be an obstacle to their um, ability to to see what he was doing and to intrude on his privacy in in exile so he's hit upon this idea was suggested to him by his doctor 
and he becomes incredibly energetic about it. It gets the whole household involved in it. They're all going to be growing vegetables. They're going to be living off the vegetables, etc. Um, great big grandiose plans for moving trees around, um, organizing uh, a, um, a sort of grotto as part of this, constructing the wall, etc. Um, but it's all an incredibly hostile environment and very, very difficult for the plants um, to, to thrive, very hard to water them. And also there's is a lot of, um, uh, you know, um, damp and, and um, mould and uh, very, very, very difficult. So however hard they try, they're constantly up against a really, really hostile um, natural world that is that is really hard to control. To come back of what about what you mentioned in the beginning about your other books, how how were they? How was this book different from them? Yeah, so my first book was about Robespierre and the French Revolution. So that really was a book about. Um, the the revolutionary events that I was describing Napoleon as 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 the young Bonaparte would have witnessed the fall of the monarchy, and so in some ways, um, going back to that story and picking up with with Napoleon and his story was a continuation for me from from the interest I had had in the revolution and trying to find a way to see how that revolutionary project ended in in the in the reign of napoleon and in and in the things that he prioritized over over the republic over the revolution so in that sense the first my first and my third book are 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 close in 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 subject matter and and time but they're so different in atmosphere and in approach. And I think part of that reason is because in between the two of them, I wrote my second book, which was totally different. Um, that was a book about um, a very uh, early biographer, 17th century biographer, John Aubrey, um, who was recovering from the English Civil War and who collected all the information he could about his contemporaries. So I wrote an imagined diary for him whereby his life was at the centre, um, even though he basically gave his life to being the biographer of those more famous people around him and lots of what we know about Milton or William Harvey, um, writers, scientists we know from, from him. So I think writing that book, which was so different in approach and subject matter, really freed me to come back to the revolution, to come back to France, back to Napoleon and do something totally different from what I did the first time around. Is there any other future books that listeners should know about that are that is that you uh, yeah, that you're working on right now? No, so um, I always have a period where I'm very unsure what I'm doing because for me, I need I need to find the the way. I need to find the subject. I need I don't want to do a repeat. So sometimes people ask me, 
like after my second book, they said, well, are you going to, if you do another book, will you also do an imagined diary for that person? And I was like, no, absolutely not. Somebody else might do that. I'm not doing that. And now they say, well, if you do another person, will you do their life through their gardens? And I'm like, no, absolutely, absolutely not. So I have to find uh, my subject and then I have to find my method um, and it, for me, it's it's a very creative process and I couldn't really um, engage with it or be excited about it if I thought it was basically repeating myself. And if my listeners would like to follow you to, um, to how, where would, uh, would they do that? So I do, I do quite a lot on Twitter because I... Um, I review a lot of books as well as writing mine. Um, and so I'm quite active in uh, it, the sort of looking at what's happening in, in, in the literary world, in nonfiction as well as fiction, I'm very interested in. So um, I use Twitter because it allows you to retweet articles and texts and things. I have a lot of friends who do Instagram, but I find that's too focused on on image. It's too it's too visual for me. I like words, so I like to be able to have um, that sense of uh, the, the text that you can have on Twitter. And and I have my website as well, um, which I try to keep up to date with putting my reviews on. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Scurry. It was uh, such a pleasure to talk with you. Um, uh, I wish you all good luck for the, with the future projects. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. Dr. Ruth Scurry's biography of Napoleon is one of my favorite reads of 2021. You can find all the details of this episode, including other books by Dr. Ruth Scurry, on my website, which will be linked in the description of this episode. I would be excited to meet you and hear your book recommendations via my monthly newsletter, which also will be linked in the description. Thanks once again, and I'll see you in the next episode of Artitude Podcast.